we are going to pray for our time in God's Word. Uh, I'm going to begin with a, a traditional prayer uh, that's prayed by Christians all around the world on this particular Sunday. Uh, and I'm also going to pray for um, Israel and the Middle East and um, things that are going on in our world. Let's pray. Lord, we ask you, grant your people grace to avoid the infections of the devil and with a pure heart and mind to follow you, the only God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Father, we are conscious of a world that is groaning. We are conscious of a world where things uh, are not right. Uh, Father, we are, we are conscious of the ongoing war in the Ukraine uh, with Russia. And Father, we, we, we pray for peace. We pray for justice. And Father, we are grieved uh, to only just be beginning to learn about uh, what has taken place in Israel and the Middle East uh, in the last day. Um, Lord, have mercy. Uh, Father, again, we, we pray for peace. Again, we pray for justice. Uh, Father, we know that uh, the, the, the story of the Middle East and the conflict over the last 50, 60, 70, hundreds of years, to be honest, um, we, we know that it's complex. Uh, we know that it is grievous um, for all people. And so, Lord, would you have mercy? Uh, Lord, would you bring peace in that region? Um, Father, we, we pray this um, for your glory and we pray this longing for your glory to uh, cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. Uh, we long for your justice to reign. We long for your son to return and to put all things right in this world. Lord, speed the day of Christ. Um, and Father, while we wait for that day, may we be ready for him. And may we be a people who obey him and may we be a people who continue to listen to his word. Uh, and so, Father, right now, would you uh, illuminate the word that we've just heard read out? Give us ears to listen and give us a will to put this word into practice. And Father, we pray this boldly and confidently because Jesus lives and all of God's people said, Amen. Well, on November 24, 2016, in the early hours of the morning, a car smashed through the awning of a fish and chip shop in Clayfield. Uh, and local resident, this fella, there he is, Daniel McConnell. Who recognises Daniel McConnell? Look at that. He's a celebrity in Brisbane, is he not? Uh, Daniel McConnell jumps straight into action. He chased down the man who'd almost destroyed his mate's mum's shop. And so later that morning, the Today Show interviewed him. Uh, let me give you a little bit of a snippet of some of the dialogue from, uh, from Daniel McConnell. He's gone this. So I jumped out of bed and all I had on was me undies. And I walked out the front and I, I seen the car smashed and I seen the bloke walking back to the car and so I walked outside and said, what are you doing mate? You can't be leaving the scene. And he goes, don't be a hero mate. And I said, I'm not trying to be a hero but the police are coming. And I started chasing him up the road and, and then he went down a side street and the police were coming and I, I flashed them and sent them off in the right direction. But mate, all I had on was me jocks. <laughs> And I was chasing him up the street, and I'm just like, mate, like, it was hilarious, wasn't it? You, you've seen the video, if you haven't, look it up on YouTube. It's there, it's got lots of hits. Uh, and the video, it went viral. This Aussie hero, this Brisbane, Clayfield Aussie hero. I remember my own Facebook feed, every second person was sharing it. 
Now, there's something about a viral video that captures your imagination, isn't there? Uh, you, 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 you scroll through reels, don't you, and kind of keep watching them, or shorts, or, or whatever short videos you can find. It, it might be that they're funny, it might be that they're bizarre, it might be the everyday heroes that we meet. But once they've captured you, you can't help but share them with others. As we kick off this series in the book of 1 Thessalonians today, we're going to meet a group of believers whose faith has gone viral. The faith of this church has gone viral. People are talking about it. People are sharing the news of these new converts. And so let's set the scene. If you've got a Bible, keep it out and keep it open. Paul is writing to Christians in Thessalonica. Uh, Thessalonica is still the second large city in Greece to this day. Uh, We won't look it up, but if you're not familiar with the context and the narrative in Paul's missionary journeys, you can go back to Acts chapter 17. And in Acts chapter 17, you see the way that the gospel was proclaimed um, from the Apostle Paul uh, and his missionary buddies uh, to the church in Thessalonica. But a riot took place. The impact of their gospel preaching brought all sorts of unrest and they kind of snuck out during the night. And so they were only in town for a relatively short amount of time. Uh, And so Paul's left this town and is writing this letter to encourage this church to press on, to continue in the faith. Pick it up with me just to set the scene. We're going to focus in particularly on the last few verses of chapters 1 through uh, chapter 1. uh, But just to set the scene in the context, pick it up with me in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Common greeting from Paul as he begins his letter. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labour of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul often speaks about faith, hope and love. Uh, Here we have the the work of faith, the labour of love and the steadfastness of hope. Three themes that he'll actually continue to come back to throughout the letter. Three themes of their faith, their trust that leads to a transformed life, their love for one another and for God, and their hope because of what Christ has done in his life, death, and resurrection. And it continues, uh, verse uh, 4 says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction. There was a riot that took place as a result of the gospel spreading in this city. With the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. This is a community that have been transformed. They have faith. They have love because of their hope. They are a community that have have converted to Christ. They have become Christian. Now, Paul, as I said at the start, he has had to leave uh, Thessalonica. 
And so his big message, this is probably his first letter that we have, his big message to this church in Thessalonica is press on. Keep going in faith. Keep going in love. Keep going in hope. Press on in the Christian life. Keep following after Jesus. This is certainly a relevant word for new converts to Jesus in the first century. But likewise, this message of pressing on is a relevant message for us today, no matter what we face as we seek to follow after Jesus. Now, Paul knows of their faith, but as you could see, like more people have heard of their faith. We've been introduced to Macedonia and Archaea in verse 7. Verse 8 continues, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Archaea, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. Isn't that cool? The story of their conversion has spread. Their faith in God has gone viral. The story of their conversion is being told again and again and again, not just in their immediate region, but around the world. And so what follows in the final uh, two verses, verse 9 and verse 10, is a wonderful and simple three-point outline of their conversion. And, and as we kind of read through verse 9 and 10, we're going to slow down a little bit more on these two verses in particular. I hope if you are a person of faith, if you profess to have your faith and your trust and your confidence in Jesus, I hope this is an encouragement for you in your faith as you see their example and the way that they have become Christian. But likewise, I think this three-point outline of their conversion is a wonderful example for you here today if you're not of faith, if you're not clear on who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. If you're, if you're not a believer, if that's you, uh, we're, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, we think every week is a good week to come and be part of this church, to come and, and listen to God in the Bible uh, and to consider his son, Jesus, who he is, why he came and what it means to follow him. And so in many senses, this is a bit of a 101, what we're going to look at in these three verses. But we never move on from the 101. We, we are always be encouraged in our faith to press on when we're reminded of the faith. And likewise, if we're new to faith and exploring Jesus and Christianity, I hope and trust uh, that these uh, two verses and the three-point outline of their conversion uh, helps to shed some light on what it could look like for you to follow Jesus and to begin following him. And so what we're going to see is the what the who and the why of conversion. Turn to your neighbour and say, I'm really excited to hear what Dave's got to say. There we go. That was, that was some good interaction. That was a good interaction. Don't worry about what I've got to say. Uh, let's worry more about what God's got to say in his word. Let's look at the first one. Number one is turn. Turn is the what of conversion. Turn is the what of conversion. Conversion involves turning from one thing to another. And in particular, when it comes to Christian conversion, turning from one object of worship to another. Let's have a look at the text again. Verse 9 says, For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. 
The what of conversion, the turn, the, the turn is how you turned to God from idols. This, this picture of turning is a picture of conversion. It's a picture of repentance, another word that is used in Scripture. And turning involves a change in attitude and a change in action. Or, to put it another way, a change in belief and a change in behaviour. I still remember my first time driving in the United States. Uh, I was driving in Dallas and I was doing pretty, pretty okay. Uh, constantly disoriented. But there was one night in particular where there wasn't much traffic. And I went to turn right at the intersection and I kind of switched back into Australian mode and realised I'd turned onto the wrong side of the road. Now, if you've been to Texas, I was in a small hire car, a small hire car, and it was frightening when I saw these big Texan trucks barreling towards me. Now, what did repentance involve in that moment? It wasn't just the realisation that I'd gone the wrong way. It required some swift behavioural change. As soon as possible, I chucked a U-E, right? I did a U-turn and I started going in the right direction. I think I, I, think I pulled into a Whataburger car park. Uh, Whataburger's a big burgers that they have in Texas. But, but kind of understanding I'm going the wrong way is not just, okay, I'm going the wrong way. I need to turn, turn away from going the wrong way. Repentance, conversion is turning back to go the right way. You see, turning, repenting, converting for us involves a change in action, sorry, attitude that leads to a change in action. And, and so what have the Thessalonians turned from? Have a look at verse 9 again. He says, and how you turn to God from idols. Their conversion story in the cosmopolitan city of Thessalonica, a city filled with idols and idolatry and temples and all sorts of trinkets to be bowed down to, for these people, for them to become Christian and convert, they turned from idols. Now, what is idolatry? Uh, the New City Catechism, I know a whole bunch of people are familiar with that. Uh, its definition of idolatry is, idolatry is trusting in created things rather than the creator for our hope and happiness, significance and security. It's a great definition. Where are you seeking to find hope and happiness? Where are you looking for significance and security? Your answer may well reveal the idols of your heart. It was uh, John Calvin who said that human nature is a perpetual factory of idols. A perpetual factory of idols. That is, in our heart of hearts, we desire to worship someone or something. And we'll turn all sorts of things into gods, objects of our worship. And so conversion involves turning away from those other gods. You see, idolatry is one of the ways that we show the sin that is within each of our hearts and our lives. You know, in the context of explaining uh, sin and idolatry, uh, the late um, Tim Keller, New York pastor, said this, Sin is not just doing bad things, it's turning good things into ultimate things because it ruins your soul, 
destroys community and dishonors God. It's not just doing bad things. It's turning good things into ultimate things. You see, because it would be easy as we hear kind of these stories of the ancient world and maybe even as you learn of different cultures in our world today that are filled with all sorts of little statues and all sorts of different types of idolatry, it'd be easy to kind of think of idolatry just in those terms. But it's not just the worship of traditional little statues made to represent the gods, like in the time of Paul and like in our time. But it's also when we turn good things into ultimate things. The many different things in our hearts that we seek to worship as if they are God. You know, three of the, the world's most beloved idols of the heart, sex, money and power. Uh, Tim Keller has uh, an excellent book um, called Counterfeit Gods, where he unpacks all three of these dominant, beloved idols of the heart. Sex, well, it isn't in and of itself wrong, far from it. Sex is a good gift from God to be enjoyed between one man and one woman in the context of marriage. Now, in previous generations, sex has been seen as something that is private, but since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, we've been increasingly seen sex elevated to the position of God. A, a good thing that's become an ultimate thing and an identity marker above all identity markers. What about money? Well, money isn't in and of itself wrong. It's a resource that can be used to show hospitality, generosity, and charity, but it makes for a lousy God. Uh, John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest people of all time, not just in his time, he was once asked this question, how much money is enough money? And he replied, just a little bit more. When money is God, no matter how much you have, it's never enough. Sex, money, what about power? Again, power isn't in and of itself wrong. Power can be used for great good, but also great harm. It can be exercised for the sake of others or for the sake of the one with power. Power can so easily corrupt when it becomes the ultimate pursuit of my heart. Now, I'm certain that every single one of us have struggled with at least one of those heart idols, at least one of those false gods. And so becoming a Christian involves a conversion when it comes to sex, money and power. Turning away from the way our world thinks and behaves in this area. Turning away from the elevation of sex, money and power as ultimate. Now we'll come back to what that could even look like in a moment, but before we move on, if you are a Christian or want to be a Christian and you're investigating Jesus and Christianity, you must identify the idols of your heart. That question I asked a moment ago, where are you seeking to find hope and happiness? Where are you seeking to look for significance and security? The worship of sex, the worship of money, the worship of power is foolish. They cannot bring the satisfaction that your heart craves and the salvation that your soul needs. And so point number one in our three-point outline of conversion modelled by this church in Thessalonica is turn. We turn from false gods. That is the what of conversion, which leads naturally to the second point in our outline, which is serve. Point number one, turn. Point number two, serve. 
Serve is the who of conversion. We're turning away from sin. We're turning away from idolatry, but we're turning to God. You know, verse 9 continues with what it looks like to turn to God. Have a look at verse 9. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. This is an important point. It's not just identifying the false gods, but recognizing the living and true God. Not just ceasing to serve the gods of this world, but serving the living and true God. Our creator who gives life and who gives breath and who gives everything. Do you notice that it requires action? Becoming a Christian is not just an intellectual exercise. It involves actively seeking to serve the living and true God. Changing your allegiance from false gods to the true God. Conversion is turning from one object of worship to serve God, to worship God. And so let's consider for a moment the examples of sex, money and power raised previously. If we're to, if we're to turn away from those as gods, it will mean that the Christian community, the church, this church, all churches, must be countercultural. We must shine like a light in the darkness. We will look radically different from the pervasive culture around us. And perhaps all the more, as our culture bows, at the wor- bows uh, to worship at the altar of sex, money and power. Uh, Tim Keller says this of the radical change that took place after the first Christians were converted. He said this, the early church was strikingly different from the culture around it in this way. The pagan society was stingy with its money and promiscuous with its body. A pagan gave nobody their money and practically gave everybody their body. And the Christians came along and gave practically nobody their body. And they gave practically everybody their money. Take a photograph of that if you need to read it again. But do you see see the call? It's to be strikingly different from the culture around us. I love uh, John Tyson. He's an Australian pastor based in New York. uh, As he reflects on that quote from Tim Keller, he says this, Therefore, we need to be a people marked by financial promiscuity and extramarital sexual stinginess. Instead of being driven by sex, money and power, we must be driven by faithfulness, generosity and servanthood. Isn't that a beautiful contrast when it comes to how we think and behave when it comes to sex, money and power? Driven by faithfulness, not sex. Generosity, not money. Servanthood, not power. And so what would it look like for you to find hope and happiness, significance and security in the living and true God. Well, to embrace a life of repentance, it's not just a one-time moment of becoming a Christian, but continuing to turn from sin and idolatry and continuing to turn to Christ, turn to God to serve Him. Repentance is the ongoing pattern of the Christian life. It's how we begin the Christian life, but it's also the ongoing pattern and posture of the Christian life. Again, this sermon is brought to you by Tim, Tim Keller. Quotes, another quote from Keller. He said this, Indeed, pervasive, all-of-life repentance 
is the best sign that we are growing deeply and rapidly into the character of Jesus. How good is that? Last year, uh, I had the opportunity to do some deep heart work when it comes to stuff going on in my own heart. Uh, Rowena and I were invited to be part of the City to City Asia Pacific Church Planting Intensive. That's .com. That's a long website, isn't it? Uh, uh, this is us with uh, a few of our friends in Malaysia in November last year. Uh, if you're not familiar, City to City is the, the global church planting movement that's grown out of Tim Keller's ministry. Uh, has been a significant support to us in the, in the establishment of this new church. Uh, and before going along to the intensive, um, we were required to read and study Tim Keller's magnum opus, which is called Center Church. And it had three sections on gospel, city and movement. Basically, we had then two weeks of lectures from nine to five in Malaysia. And week one was all about section one of Centre Church, the gospel. Two things, gospel theology and gospel renewal. Now, gospel theology is all about, hey, make, hey you're going to plant a church, get the gospel right. Make sure you're clear on who Jesus is, why Jesus came and what does it mean to follow Jesus. But then secondly, gospel renewal is... Before you think about preaching to anyone, let the gospel do a deep work in your own heart and your own life. And so as we kind of worked through this section on gospel renewal, uh, we went through some of Keller's material on identifying the idols in our hearts and of demolishing our idols with the gospel. Not effort, <laughs> but with the gospel of God's grace. Now, amid the deep dive into the muck in our hearts, uh, I had the opportunity to, I, I guess, identified something of pride within my own heart as a, as a dominant idol, uh, an idol that I think I'd overlooked in a bunch of different ways. And, and our time in Malaysia was confronting in kind of digging deep and really thinking through some specific ways I'd acted, reflecting back on behavior where I was overconfident in myself and my own abilities, trusting in my strategies rather than trusting in God in prayer, and I was reminded of actually really specific examples in my past. Even some time ago, uh, I, there, was, there was a particular situation and a, a particular heart attitude that I never told anyone about. I think it was in 2014. And, and, and I was reminded of this heart attitude that I had and reminded of how often pride is crouching at the door. You know, some of these very concrete, specific things, I'd never told anyone about them. And I think I did a decent job of kind of hiding um, what was going on in my heart, and yet, of course, I didn't hide it from God. Good, good luck doing that. If you're currently trying to, if, you, if you're currently being successful at hiding something from your family, from your friends, well, well done. Maybe you are not going to be successful from hiding things from God. He sees all. What an opportunity it was while we were in Malaysia to kind of address some of those idols of pride within my own heart and. What a reminder of the ongoing need that we all have to keep doing that heart work of demolishing the idols that our hearts cling to with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, um, uh, Keller has a whole bunch of tools to identify and then demolish idols in what, uh, in what he would call gospel repentance. Uh, here's a quote from Keller. He says this, Thus, in religion, repentance is self-centred, but the gospel makes it God-centred. In religion, we're mainly sorry for the consequences of sin, but in the gospel, we are sorry for the sin itself. It's a good quote. 
The um, 18th century pastor, uh, George Whitfield, had a practice of every night repenting through honest self-assessment. This is what George Whitfield said. He said, God, give me a deep humility, a well-guided zeal, a burning love, and a single eye. And then, let men or devils do their worst. I love that. Do this work within me, God. Um, what Keller has uh, kind of done off the back of some of George Whitfield's thinking is kind of use George Whitfield's order there in that quote and kind of unpacked questions that we could ask ourselves and give us a picture of gospel-grounded repentance. Um, we'll pop some up on the screen. I might send these around. If you're not in our WhatsApp group, I might send these in detail around. You won't have time to write them all down. Uh, and in our home groups too, I think there could be the opportunity not necessarily to do it in front of one another, but to kind of even lay it out. Hey, here's some things that you could actually go home and reflect upon and ask of your own heart. And so under the category of deep humility uh, versus pride, question, have I looked down on anyone? Have I been too stung by criticism? Have I felt snubbed and ignored? And so then Keller says, repent like this. Consider the free grace of Jesus until I sense A, decreasing disdain, since I'm a sinner too, and B, decreasing pain over criticism, since I should not value human approval over God's love. In light of his grace, I can let go of the need to keep up a good image. Uh, it is too great a burden and is now unnecessary. I reflect on free grace until I experience grateful, restful joy. Secondly, in the category of wise courage versus anxiety, the questions that Keller suggests to ask are, have I avoided people or tasks that I know I should face? Have I been anxious and worried? Have I failed to be circumspect? Or have I been rash and impulsive? Good questions. How are you tracking? Keller says this, repent like this. Consider the free grace of Jesus until there is a no cowardly avoidance of hard things since Jesus faced evil for me and B, no anxious or rash behaviour, since Jesus' death proves that God cares and will watch over me. It takes pride to be anxious, and I recognise I'm not wise enough to know how my life should go. I reflect on free grace until I experience calm thoughtfulness and strategic boldness. Number three, under the category of burning love versus indifference, the questions, have I spoken or thought unkindly of anyone? Am I justifying myself by caricaturing someone else in my mind? Have I been impatient and irritable? Have I been self-absorbed, indifferent and inattentive to people? Yeah. Well, you suggest repent like this. Consider the free grace of Jesus until there is A, no coldness or unkindness as I think of the sacrificial love of Christ for me. B, no impatience as I think of his patience with me. And C, no indifference as I think of how God is infinitely attentive to me. I reflect on free grace until I show warmth and affection. And the final heading is godly motivations. The, the single eye. A few questions here. Am I doing what I do for God's glory and the good of others? Or am I being driven by fears, need for approval, love of comfort and ease, need for control, hunger for acclaim and power, or the fear of other people? Luke 12. Am I looking at anyone with envy? Am I giving in to even the first motions of lust or gluttony? 
Am I spending my time on urgent things rather than important things because of these inordinate desires? Again, more penetrating questions. Well, repent like this. Consider how the free grace of Jesus provides me with what I'm looking for in these other things. Pray, O Lord Jesus, make me happy enough in you to avoid sin and wise enough in you to avoid danger that I may always do what is right in your sight. In your name I pray, amen. Friends, let's be a people who ask the hard questions about the idols that, contribute, that continue to lurk within our hearts maybe on all four of those points and four sets of those questions you're like yep 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 ticks all the way through or it might have been for a few of them you're like you know what that's not really a a thing that i'm struggling with within my own heart but maybe one set of those questions in particular like yeah hit the nail on the head well hit the nail on the head and then work out what it means to apply the gospel into the idols of your hearts as you demolish them with the good news of Jesus. And so let's, number one, let's turn from idols to number two, serve, worship the living and true God. And then the final point in our three-point conversion outline is wait. Number one, turn. Number two, serve. Number three, wait. And wait is the why of conversion. Wait describes how we live now, but also why we wait, why we turn, and why we serve. So verse 9, we've seen turn, serve, and wait. Now have a look at verse 10. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Waiting for Jesus. Jesus is our deliverer. Other words for deliverance there, Jesus is our saviour. Jesus is our rescuer. And he rescues us from God's wrath. It says he who rescues us from the wrath to come. He, he rescues us from God's wrath, if we take a step back, in two ways. He rescues us from God's wrath in his first coming, but also in his second coming. Jesus rescues us from God's wrath in his first coming. God's wrath... His anger, his judgment has already come at the cross. Not because of Jesus' sin and idolatry, because Jesus is not guilty of sin and idolatry. But because of our sin and idolatry, we are deserving of God's wrath and God's anger. And that is right and that is just. And yet along comes Jesus, the only one of whom it can be said he is without sin. You know, remember when Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prays and says, Abba, Father. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, the cup Jesus is referring to is the cup of wrath. It's mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament prophets. And the, the cup of wrath was a picture of the penalty that the wicked, all who are sinful, deserve to drink for their sin and idolatry. You see, we need to understand that we all deserve to drink from that horrible cup. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus is the one without sin who willingly goes to the cross and drinks that cup on our behalf. He drinks that cup of wrath. He's already lived the life we failed to live and then he dies the death that we deserve, takes the wrath and the judgment that was meant for us, is taken by him. Is that not incredible? Isn't that good news? But more than that, the text says, whom he raised from the dead. Jesus didn't stay dead. He really has dealt with 
the wrath of God. He really has defeated sin, defeated, defeated Satan and defeated death. And Jesus has saved us from God's wrath in his first coming. But he, is also, he also saves us from God's wrath in the future, which is kind of what verse 10 is getting at. Look in verse 10, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Because Jesus has already rescued us in his first coming, because he's already paid the penalty and drunk the cup of wrath, we can be certain that he will deliver us in the future. At his second coming, on the final day of judgment, all those who are in Christ will be saved on that day. You know, I remember reading the story, uh, reading a story of the dangers faced by American pioneers during the summer as they crossed the rolling plains in search of land. Uh, imagine for a moment uh, the, the head-high prairie grass uh, that during summer in the midst of high temperatures and dry storms would mean that one strike of lightning could ignite the grass with a fire front that moves much faster than people and wagons. And yet they faced it with confidence. Why? Well, because when they spotted the fire front approaching, knowing that they could not outrun the fire, they would stand with their backs to the wind and light a series of fires that would then take off in front of them. And it meant they could confidently wait for the main fire to come, knowing that fire won't burn twice in the same place again. You know, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection is that God's wrath and judgment against sin has already burnt at the cross. Therefore, for those who belong to Jesus, we can stand confidently, waiting for the day to come, knowing that God's judgment won't burn in the same place again. And so waiting for Jesus involves eagerly being consumed by him. Not that we're of no good on this earth, just kind of waiting our time out, waiting for heaven to appear. We've already heard in, in point two of the call to serve God now. And so a Christian is someone who has Jesus as number one, whose priorities are now shaped by waiting for Jesus, confident of our future with him. We began in... In verse 8, learning uh, something of the faith of the Thessalonians that had gone viral. As we conclude, Christ our refuge, wouldn't it be wonderful if we were known for our faith, that it would go viral? That the stories of how God first saved us and how he continues to work in us by his spirit, to embrace the ongoing pattern of repentance, turning, serving, and waiting. As we begin this series in 1 Thessalonians, as we are encouraged to press on in our faith, to keep trusting Jesus, to keep turning and doing that heart work from idols, serving the living and true God, and waiting for Jesus. Why don't we pray that God would not only help us to press on, but that as we live out that repentant pattern of life, that this city would find what we found in Jesus and that they too would find refuge in him. Let's pray together.
Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Jesus. Uh, Father, it might be that right now, as we've been reflecting for this last half hour or so, that some of us have felt uncomfortable as we are reminded of the idols within our own hearts. Uh, Lord, um, help us to sit with that discomfort for a moment, but help us to also know of the wonderful solution in the gospel, that as we... Uh, that, as we become aware of the idols in our hearts, enable us to turn again from them, to serve you and to wait for your son. Lord, we want to thank you that this church some 2,000 years ago, that the story of their faith has echoed down throughout the centuries, millennia, that people continue to be encouraged by their example of turning and serving and waiting. And so, Father, we want to ask that you would help us to live out our faith, press on in our faith, be examples of those who are really, truly trusting in Jesus, that others in Brisbane, that others in our schools, that others in our workplaces would come to know Jesus as well, would come and find refuge in him who has lived, died and been raised again. Father, we pray this boldly and confidently and we pray this knowing that we need the help of your Holy Spirit and it's in Jesus' name that we all pray. Amen.